All right, if you would find in your Bibles Genesis 25, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can either grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, and I didn't look up the page number, but it's around page 20 or so, or you can find today's sermon text in your handout on the next page as well. We'll do a little flipping around today, so it may be better to have a Bible opened with you so that you can flip with us. Once you're there, let's pray together. Father God, as we have looked to you in worship and just sung out the name of your son Jesus and all that he's done for us and as we have celebrated together the, the new life that you give to us through this sign of baptism, uh, we ask God, would you, would you make our joy complete by speaking to us now, by feeding us now through your holy word? Uh, we have seen a sign twice this morning of the Christian life beginning and now we ask, God, would you carry us on? Would you help us to endure all the way through the end? Would you speak powerfully? To that end, we ask for some, some really specific things. We ask that you would help me to overcome the many weaknesses that I am beset with and bear when I proclaim this word. Would you give to me clarity? Would you give to me uh, a clear and contagious sense of passion as I proclaim your word? Would you fill me with your spirit that everyone here would know that what's happening is beyond the capabilities of a person to, to speak publicly and see work like this done? And we ask for all of us that you would help us to, to lean in our ears, to attend our ears to what you were saying, uh, that we might grow in Christ. Uh, even, even hearts here that don't trust your son and aren't sure about the truth of your word, oh God, would you make them new this morning? We just look to you for all of this. So would you help us to the glory of your son Jesus and to, to our good, we ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. If you're a Christian, then Jesus promises to you that temptation will come for you. He says, temptation must come and woe to the one by whom it comes. So, so that means that if you're following Jesus right now, there, there will come points, probably multiple points along your pilgrimage all the way home to Jesus. Many points along the way where whatever sins you were once in that once were so appealing to you that you loved so much and maybe you don't love them so much anymore, there'll probably be moments where they look really alluring again and you really want to go back to the moments of temptation. Or maybe you'll be over those for good, but there will be new sins and things that you never considered and never really associated with yourself. But in moments or even long extended seasons, they'll start to become really alluring and really tempting. The Lord says that is bound to happen. And when it does, uh, it comes through somebody, right? Jesus says, what are the one through whom it comes? It comes through somebody, through the great deceiver, through our great enemy, uh, through Satan himself. And he has goals in doing that. He has a desire in tempting us. Uh, his desire is not just to lure you into sin so that you can do something you'll regret and then you'll feel bad about it and he can kind of sit back in his chair and laugh and go, ha, ha, I got you to do something that you feel bad about and now you feel bad. He wants so much more than that. He's like a, he's like a fisherman in a pond who is, is dangling bait on a hook and he wants more than for the fish to just eat the worm. He wants to hook the fish, right? And he's got a goal in hooking the fish too. It's, he's not satisfied just having the fish hooked and then it just swims around with the hook in its mouth and moves the fishing line everywhere. No, the fisherman wants to pull the fish out of the pond. And that is what Satan wants for you when he puts temptation in your path. 
when he tempts you. He is not satisfied with you blowing up in anger once at somebody you love and then harming that relationship and having regret and then just having to live with that. He wants that, but he wants more than that. He wants you to get hooked on anger. And then he wants you to blow up in anger again and then do it again and then again. Or maybe, if this is more like your personality, just kind of simmer there in bitterness and never really blow up, but just have the slow burn forever and ever until you've severed all your relationships in anger, until you've gotten angry at your church and walked out of your church and even gotten angry at God, at Jesus himself, and left the faith altogether. That's what Satan wants for you. He wants to completely destroy your soul and your faith, and that's why he's putting that temptation in front of you. He wants to hook you and pull you out of the pond. He would not be satisfied with you scrolling through your Instagram feed this afternoon and seeing how perfect somebody else's life appears and then coveting their happiness and then putting the phone down and being done with it. He wants that, but he wants more than that. He wants you to see that over and over again and become consumed with wanting what other people have or to see people here at church and families come in dressed perfectly on Easter and see how perfect they are and say, oh, I wish I had that kind of happiness in my life. He's not happy with us just coveting once. He wants to hook us on it. So over and over again, we want what others have. And eventually, stop seeking first the kingdom of heaven, but start seeking first what other people have. Become so consumed by covetousness that we leave the gospel, leave the kingdom, and live a life of just trying to grab what others have. So the point here is, Satan doesn't just dangle the bait in front of you because he wants you to take it. He wants to hook you and he wants to pull you all the way out of the pond. Jesus gives some other promises, though, that give us reassurance. He speaks of himself as a shepherd and speaks of us as sheep, and he says, no one snatches them out of my hand. So he promises that if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ right now, Uh, Satan's attempts to tempt you and pull you away will not ultimately be successful. He can't pull you all the way out of the pond because Jesus will be there to grab you, to take the hook out of your mouth. He promises that there will be no temptation greater than what you can bear. Everybody's got a limit, right? Who can take so much. And Jesus will either stop us from hitting that limit or if we get there, he will strengthen us and make our limit even higher. So our Lord is working to keep us and he promises that he who began a good work in you will complete it all the way to the finish. So so Satan's schemes against you aren't going to succeed ultimately. That's because the Lord is working in your life. One way that he works is through a text like one that we're going to look at this morning, what we call warning texts, where the Spirit of God warns us, warns Christians, don't do this, don't do what this person did. And the Spirit speaks through that. And through that work, the Lord extends the crook of his shepherd's hook and says, no one snatches them out of my hand. It just brings us back and strengthens us for the walk ahead. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians talks about these kind of stories in the Old Testament, and it says they, they happened as an example for us, and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, so that we would not do the things they did, that we would not make the mistakes that they made. And the book of Hebrews even speaks of this very story about a man named Esau, and essentially says, make sure no one does what Esau did. And so we're going to lean in this morning and listen to the Lord for a warning that if we heed it, will keep us from falling away from the faith in the same way that Esau, proverbially speaking, did. 
We're going to look at the story of Jacob and Esau this morning. And the plot tension in this part of Genesis is basically Isaac has two sons, they're twins, Esau and Jacob. And the whole plot tension is which one of them is going to get his inheritance. It's a succession type story. Who's going to be the heir at the end of this? Isaac has great possessions, great wealth, one of the wealthiest men in the world in his day. And he also has promises from God that he is going to be the father of, of the people of God and even the kingdom of God that will one day be built and flourished under David and then under Solomon. He will be the father of this whole nation. He will have a, a high place in God's kingdom and a place in God's people. And all of this will be handed down to one son or the other. One of these sons is going to be the father of the people of God, have a place in God's kingdom, and one of them isn't. Which one is it going to be? the one who gets the inheritance. And so there's the tension in the plot. Who's going to get it? We would think that it would be Esau, firstborn. He gets the inheritance. That's how it's supposed to work. But there has been this prophecy that the younger will serve the older. And so we're all kind of watching to see, is there going to be a, a switch here? Are they going to reverse? And the secondborn came out of the womb grabbing the firstborn's heel as if to say, I am going to topple you and get on top. So what's going to happen? Is Esau going to come out on top with the inheritance or is Jacob going to come out on top? We begin to find out here in chapter 25 as we read verses 29 to 34. Let's read it together. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted and he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The words of the Lord. Through that tragedy of Esau, our Lord warns us not to let our passions consume us and not to despise the inheritance we have in the gospel. This is how the New Testament treats stories like this. As I said a moment ago, 1 Corinthians tells us to look back on these stories and see them as written for our instructions that we might not make the same mistakes and sins that they did. And of Esau, the New Testament Hebrews actually says, see to it that none of you is unholy or immoral like Esau who sold his inheritance for a single meal. So he likens Esau getting hungry trading his inheritance for just one satisfaction of his appetite to the many sins and immoralities we might commit just once and trade away the kingdom for it, right? I have this hunger, I have this desire, I will give it all up for that. The writer says, make sure none of us do that. So we look here for a warning that helps us as believers stay within the people of God by which the Spirit of God keeps us this morning. There are two characters in the story, Jacob on one side and Esau on the other. Uh, Jacob his name means deceiver, or really literally means heel grabber, right? the one who's tricking you and grabbing your heel all the time. He came out of the womb grabbing Esau's heel as if to say, I will topple you eventually. 
And now they are adults, and he finally springs his trap and captures his prey some decades later. He is then, as the deceiver who essentially tricks his brother into giving up his inheritance, he is a picture to us, believe it or not, of the great deceiver, the one who lies in wait for us and would grab our heel and topple us if the Lord were to allow him. And so in the way he operates here, he gives us an inside view into our enemy, into Satan's tactics that he wants to use to, to tempt us. On the other hand, Esau is a man overcome by his appetite and who the last sentence says despises his inheritance. He thinks small of this great inheritance that he has. And so in that, he becomes a picture of those who miss the kingdom of God because they're consumed by their appetite and because they don't value the gospel highly or they despise the gospel. So we're gonna look at those two pictures one at a time, first Jacob and then Esau. Jacob showing us Satan's devices to tempt us Esau showing us what we would look like if we were to fall back into our old ways, become consumed by our appetites, and even despise the gospel and walk away from it so that we can be warned not to do that. Let's look first, uh, first at Jacob. Two of Satan's tactics and moves that Jacob gives us an inside view of. First, the deceiver, the great deceiver, he is ready to pounce in your weakest moments. Satan is ready to pounce on you in your weakest moments. We see this in Jacob's very clever timing. Now, I said earlier, he's been his whole life trying to get on top of Esau and topple him. Here they are, grown men. Several decades have gone by. Esau comes in from the field exhausted, and now that he is weak and exhausted, Jacob springs the trap upon him. We see this beginning in verse 29. Last word we see when Jacob, I'm sorry, when Esau comes in, he was exhausted. All right, so you can imagine he's out in the field, probably hunting, maybe doing farming out there. He comes in tired, and in his weariness, in his weakness, the deceiver springs the trap on him. We see this also in the way that Jacob kind of responds, cool and calculated. Esau is obviously very weak, very consumed by hunger. He says in verse 30, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. You can just hear his heart pounding at 180 beats per minute with this craving, this desire. He's exhausted, but his heart is racing. And in verse 31, Jacob's words are the opposite. He is cool, his heart's beating at a cool 50 beats per minute, and he says, Sell me your birthright now. So here's one, exhausted and overcome, and the other one, cool, calculated, conniving, carefully chosen words. He is springing his trap like a lion that has crouched in the bushes. You can barely tell he is there until his claw is already out and he's got his prey. Sell to me your birthright now. The same exchange happens again in verse 32. Esau just roaring, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob, cool, calculated, even manipulative, says, swear to me now. And so Esau swears to him and it's over. This is very much like a lion hiding in the bushes. and You don't even know the trap is set until it is too late and the prey is grabbed. This is how our enemy would like to pursue us as well. It gives us really a chilling truth for the Christian life. 
there is a deceiver, a lion, that is after us as well. The book of 1 Peter says that we should be sober-minded and watchful, we've got to watch out, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is sneaking in the bushes and hiding in the bushes, and you may not even notice he is there until he's already got his claws out. And so what do we have to do? We have to keep our eyes open and we have to watch. What Jacob's tactic here tells us is something that we see in other places about our enemy, and that is that he loves to wait until we are exhausted to spring the trap. He likes to wait until you are at your hungriest, or your most tired, or your most disheartened and discouraged. And then he says, aha, my moment has come, and he springs the trap right then. That means that when you are at your most tired, or when you're at your hungriest, or when you're most disheartened and discouraged about something going on, this is when you must be the most watchful. Because if we know Satan well, that's exactly when he might strike the most. A man may turn from drunkenness and stay sober for 10 years with very little temptation after he gets out of the woods with it. And then work gets more stressful and he has to work more hours so he comes home more tired and that puts strain on his marriage and so things become difficult in his marriage and so now with greater stress he's not sleeping very well and so now he's coming home every day after long stressful hours not having slept well the night before to a home that's less of a refuge than it should be and all of a sudden the bottle looks a lot more tempting than it used to. Why is that? Because Satan likes to wait until we're at our weariest, at our weakest, to attack us. Or differently, maybe a single woman has been fighting pornography addiction for six months. She hasn't used it. She's praising God that she seems to be free from it. And then she goes to a party where she sees the young man that she's hoping is going to ask her out on a date one day. And she gets there to the party and realizes that he is there with another girl. And she comes home disheartened and sad. And all of a sudden, the temptation is 10 times greater than it has been before. Why is that? Well, because Satan likes to wait until we're at our weariest to strike us. He is a clever cat hiding in the bushes, waiting until you're at your weariest to jump out and pounce. That means that when we're at our weariest, we have to be all the more on guard lest we wind up like Esau, falling right into the trap. That means that those moments of weariness, you'll probably be tempted to skip your daily Bible readings then because you're tired and disheartened, but actually you need them all the more because you need your defenses shored up. You might be tempted in those weary days, months, and years to shorten your daily prayers because I'm just so tired and it's just hard to finish this thing. I'll just finish it early. But actually, you need that even more because your defenses need to be shored up. You might even be tempted to skip church in those seasons, right? Because I'm tired and it's just hard to get out of bed on Sunday morning and I don't want to get there. I'm weary. But when you are weary, you need it even more because your defenses need to be even stronger, so don't isolate yourself in the weary seasons. Don't skip on your devotions. Don't skip on your quiet times. Don't skip on church. You need it even more because that's the time that our enemy is most likely to pounce. That's the first thing that Jacob shows us. One of Satan's tactics is to wait until our weakest moment before he pounces on us.
Second thing Jacob shows us here is that often our enemy's bait doesn't taste as good as it smells. That is to say that the bait smells better when it's dangling on the hook than it actually tastes when we bite it. It's not always the case, but it's often the case. We see this in sort of the double sting of Jacob's trick here. Now, earlier, Esau had come in, and in verse 30, he had said, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. A lot of symbolism there in the word red. His name means red. That's why he's called Edom, because it means red. One thing that's going on here is you walk in exhausted from work, and there is red juice just dripping over there in the pot, in this story that has, well, if you had read earlier, if I'd read to you earlier, we would have seen that, that the idea of hunting and game and meat is a big deal in this story. Esau hunts game and Isaac loves him because of the meat that he brings home. So we've got on the mind there with this red stew, just dripping New York strip chopped up in a stew, some thick, meaty, chili with filet mignon in it, just something wonderful and meaty. And Esau says, give me some of that red, red. In the original, it's not even red stew, it's red, red. Like he just wants that good meat. There are actually two ways you can make stew meaty like that or red like that. One is red meat. The other one is red lentils. You can use red lentils and then the stew appears red and it has that appearance of really good meaty food. So Jacob comes in, I'm sorry, Esau comes in. He smells it. He senses, oh, there is good meat here. I am so hungry. He sells the birthright for it. He sits down. And then in verse 34, we read what the stew actually is. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. So it's not even the rich meat that he thought it was. It's just bread and lentils. So not only has he given his inheritance away for a single meal, there, there would be no meal worth giving that whole inheritance away, but it's not even a good meal, it's just lentils. And often it works that way, not always, but often, once we bite the bait, we realize, oh, it was just lentils wasn't even as good as I thought it would be. There is no encounter with a prostitute that would be worth it, so to speak, worth giving up our promises in the gospel, worth giving up a marriage for. Even if it were the most fantastic and enjoyable time one could ever have. But often what happens is men fall into that sin and they say, oh, it wasn't even enjoyable, right? It just turned out to be lentils, right? The bait smelled better than it tasted. There is no fit of anger that you could just blow up on somebody that you love that would be worth it. It's never really worth it. It's never worth giving up that relationship for, walking away from the gospel for, if you get deeply enough into it, never fully worth it. Even if it turned out to be the most satisfying thing in the world and your friend just cowered in sorrow and begged your forgiveness and said, you are so right and I am so wrong, just lash out. I mean, even if it were fully gratifying, it would not be worth it. But often, what really happens is someone falls into anger, blows up at someone, and it turns out the other person is in a better frame of mind than you and smarter than you, and so they win the argument and they make you look silly. Right? Turns out to be lentils and not red meaty stew. Often the bait smells better on the hook than it tastes when we bite it.
So the point here is that it will never be worth it, right? None of these deep sins are worth leaving the gospel for. But oftentimes there's a double sting as well. Oftentimes they don't even bring the momentary happiness that we think they're going to bring. And Jacob serving Esau's lentil stew here gives us just a little picture of that double sting, that disappointment that says, oh, it wasn't even fun. It didn't even fulfill the momentary happiness that I thought it was going to give me. So there are two of Satan's tactics that Jacob gives us a picture of here. The deceiver's ready to pounce on you in your weakest moments. And often the bait smells better on the hook than it tastes once we bite it. That's what Jacob shows us here. Let's move over to Esau. Esau is a picture of those who miss the kingdom of God because they're overcome by their desires and because they do not cherish the gospel of Jesus but despise it instead. We can see in verse 30 and in verse 32 in Esau's words how overcome he is with his hunger. We've looked at this a little already in verse 30. He comes in, he shouts, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. You can see there a man who is overcome by his hunger. There's nothing on his heart, nothing on his mind other than that stew that he wants. His hunger has got him. Even to the point that in verse 32, He says, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Now, he is is not about to die. If he were about to die, he wouldn't be running around shouting like this, saying all of this stuff. He would be laying on the floor about to die. So he's not really about to die. No, he's just so overcome with hunger that all he can imagine is what he wants. So he feels like he is about to die. This is a picture of somebody whose desires, whose passion, whose appetite has fully consumed them and their entire universe consists of their desire and the thing that they want. Some of us know what it's like to be that consumed by a singular passion or by a desire for many things. Esau shows us a little bit of what that looks like. One of the truths of the Bible that's difficult to swallow, difficult to receive, but is so good and helpful for us uh, comes in the book of Ephesians where, where we learn that actually all of us were at least once like that, overcome with our desires. Uh, if you would, let's turn to Ephesians 2 together or I'll show you where it teaches us that. Essentially, we either all were once like Esau or some of us still are like Esau. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to Christians here and he's writing of the way that they used to live and the way that those who do not follow Jesus still live even now, just the darkness in the human heart. He says in verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So that means basically going the same direction as everyone else in the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's an eloquent way of saying following, following Satan, following our enemy, doing what our enemy wants us to do. 
Now you might say, that sounds kind of harsh. I was, I was following Satan. How did that? I didn't realize I was following Satan. I was doing that on purpose. How was I doing that? Well, he goes on in verse three to explain how. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Essentially what we were doing, we were living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of our body on the outside and, and our minds and hearts on the inside. Basically, we were doing what we wanted to do, right? We were living according to our appetite, our desires, and our passions. Now, when someone is consumed by a desire and a passion, and when you have what they want, they're very easy to manipulate. Right, just offer them the thing that they want in exchange for what you want, and it's that simple. And that's exactly what Satan does to us when we are consumed by our passions and desires. Oh, oh, I see, you're controlled by your desire to have approval from other people. Well, I'll just offer you approval if you do what I want. Or, oh, you're consumed by your desire for food or for sex or for entertainment or anything, right? He says, I'll just offer you that as long as you keep doing what I want. It just leads along those who are consumed by their passions all the way to their destruction, just like Jacob was able to manipulate Esau, who was consumed by his passions, all the way to giving up his inheritance. Oh, you want stew? I've got stew. Just sell me your inheritance, right? Deal with the devil made right there. So the idea is we were all once just like Esau. And if you're here today, not as a follower of Jesus, I hope, you hope this helps you understand a little bit of why you do some things that you do that you might find confusing because if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still an Esau, still consumed by your passions and your desires. There has only been one human who ever lived who was not consumed by his passions and his desires. This is the Son of God himself, as this Jesus Christ, who lived here as a man and he went out into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 days and he fasted. So he had not eaten for 40 days out there in the wilderness, ministered to by angels because he wouldn't have survived even if they had not come and ministered to him. So here he is at his very weakest, 40 days of hunger. And guess who appears at his weakest moment to tempt him? The great deceiver, Satan, right? And so he says to him, hey, I know you're hungry. Turn those stones into bread as I command you. And Jesus says, no. He's the one who can withstand temptation, even at his weakest moment, because he's not consumed by his desires. And then Satan says, okay, okay, get up on the temple and jump off in front of everybody, because you know what'll happen. Angels will come and rescue you, and you'll be glorified in front of everybody just like you want. And he says, I'm not consumed by my desires. I'm consumed by God's word, and I live on God's word. So he says, no, and he resists. And Satan says to him, okay, here are all the kingdoms of the world, right? There's no better offer than that. All the kingdoms of the world, just worship me and it will all be yours. And here's Jesus, not having eaten for 40 days at his very weakest, and he says, no. Right? Here's the one not consumed by his passions, our Lord, our Christ. And the good news is, he is willing to look upon you and say, I can make you like me. I can give you the power to not be consumed by your desires, Jesus says. So if, if you're looking at this and saying, okay, this is an accurate 
MRI of my heart. This is a good diagnosis of my heart. I do whatever I want. I'm consumed by my desires. And maybe this even puts some stress or some distress on you. And you might say, okay, what will I do before God? I have lived according to my passions for my whole life, just defying God's name my whole life, and I have no way of stopping in the future because I'm consumed by my desires. What will you do? I'll tell you what you can do. Look to this Jesus, the one who conquered temptation, the one who conquered sin, who says, my death is powerful enough to pay for your sins. My resurrection from the dead is powerful enough to help you overcome death and my strength against temptation I will give to you as I put my spirit within you bearing its fruits. That is what Jesus is willing to offer you with an open hand. And so my call to you is come to him. Look to the one who can overcome Satan's tactics and can overcome temptation. Look in faith to Jesus Christ. For those who do, and many of you here today already have, we just saw two more coming forward to say, I trust this Jesus. For those of us that do, what Jesus does is he puts his very spirit in us. His spirit dwells within us. And that's alluded to a little bit in the next verse of Ephesians. He says, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So the imagery there is moving from death to life, which is what we saw up there in baptism. If you flip a page back to Galatians chapter five, it's probably one page back in your Bible, maybe two. We get a picture of what that looks like. What's the difference between this new life risen with Christ and the old life? And as we look at it, we're going to find a lot of what looks like Esau there. So in chapter 5, verse 19, he says, The works of the flesh are evident. That is, if you are consumed by the desires of your body, here's the stuff that will come out of you, the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So those who live like Esau, consumed by their desires, that's the stuff that comes out of us when we live like that. Which is why he can say in the next sentence, I warned you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you, if you live like an Esau, you wind up not getting the inheritance like an Esau. You live according to your desires, you wind up not getting the kingdom. And then he gives the contrast. Well, what about those of us that trust in Jesus and we have the Spirit of God in us? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus says, you come to me, I'll put my spirit in you, and I will make you like me. He says, I will conform you into my image, even giving you self-control. So how do you go from being an Esau to being like Jesus? You you turn and you, you trust in Jesus. He puts that spirit in you and you spend the rest of your life chasing after that self-control that he gives to you. The warning here 
in Esau is that Satan is still after you. Even after you got the spirit in you, he's not gonna give up. Jesus might win that battle, but Satan's not gonna give up just yet. And so, Christians, don't be ruled by your desires. If you do, you are within yourself capable of throwing the whole thing away for some sin that you want to chase after. Jesus won't let that happen, but you're capable of it in yourself, right? We sing in the hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And then we sing, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, right? Because Jesus holds us, seal it for your courts above. So don't let the assurance Jesus gives you keep you from hearing the warning. If you live like an Esau, you will end up like an Esau, losing the inheritance. That's why the book of Hebrews says, see to it that no one among you is immoral like Esau, who sold his inheritance for one single meal. Because we don't want to wind up like him. So it's the first way that Esau shows us those who miss the kingdom. They're ruled by their passions. But that even isn't the greatest reason that Esau lost on the inheritance. Let's flip back to Genesis. The greatest reason that Esau lost his inheritance is given to us in the last sentence of this story. Oftentimes, these, these stories have a little, almost like the moral of this story is, colon, and a little sentence that just tells you the whole point of the whole thing. I love when they do that because it makes my job so easy. So here's the one in this one, last sentence in this story. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You'll see that in verse 34. That's the point of the whole thing. So ultimately, Esau didn't lose the birthright because Jacob pounced on him at the right time. Not ultimately. That's one reason. Not ultimately. Ultimately, he didn't lose it because he was consumed by his passions. Ultimately, he lost the birthright because he thought small of it, because he despised it. The inheritance coming to him was more wealth than most of us could imagine us having. And one of the greatest titles of the day, kings feared his father, and all that was coming to him. Not only that, but a place of honor among God's kingdom. The whole nation of the kingdom of God would look to him and call him Father Esau. And for all eternity, he would be that highly lauded in God's kingdom. He looked at that in verse 32 and said, so what, I'm hungry. He thought small of the inheritance. What use is that to me? I'm exhausted. I'm starving. I want food. Now, th- these promises that the Lord gives to us are, are kind of the, the d- developed mustard tree version of that same promise. If that was the seed form of the promise today, the promise God gives to us is a, a great place in his kingdom and even forgiveness for our sins and eternal life with him, not, not just perishing life in a kingdom and then you die, but eternal life with him forever. And there are many who will look at that promise of an eternal kingdom with God and say, so what? I'm hungry. So what? I like that guy. So what? She's cute. Right? So what? I have desires to be fulfilled. What's the main reason people hear the gospel and miss out on it? Because they despise it. They look down on it as small. Jesus says the kingdom of God, the gospel, is like a pearl, a merchant searching for pearls. And he finds one. He says, this one is valuable. 
worth more than all the others. So he goes and sells everything that he has so he can buy that one pearl. He says the gospel's like that pearl is worth selling it all for. Or, or similar idea, different image. It's like a treasure buried in a field and a man finds this treasure in the field. He says, I gotta have this treasure. And he goes and he sells everything that he has so he can buy that field and have that treasure. If you come across the good news of Jesus, of forgiveness for your sins and eternal life in his name, it makes you say, okay, I'll give up everything for that treasure, right? That is the treasure of the gospel. Peter calls it precious and very great promises. But the apostle Paul says it's the power of salvation for us but to those who are perishing, it's folly. It's foolishness. It's, you believe that? You, you gave up your identity as a trans woman for that? Right? You waited until marriage to have sex for that? Right? It's folly to those who are perishing. They don't see the value in it. And so the warning we get there is if we despise this precious gospel that's been handed to us, if we look at it and say, that's, that's small, that's not a big deal, we can walk right into the trap like Esau did and give it away because we don't cherish it. We don't treat it like the pearl of great price. God does this work over time of, of showing us how beautiful this gospel is so that we cherish it more and more through our days, but the warning is don't, don't take it lightly, right? Don't look at what God has given you and say, that's ah, not really a big deal. I just, I just want to go home and eat lunch, right? We got dinner cooking and I can't wait to eat it. No, not with this gospel. That means then if, if the, the things in your life that help you to cherish the gospel more, progressively more and more, if those are preparing you for the day of temptation, uh, that means that every time you're here, leaning in and laboring to understand whatever it is that, that a preacher is trying to say from the word here, you're, you're fighting for your life. because you're, you're cherishing the gospel more and more, which guards you on the day of temptation to not be like Esau, not sell it and not give it away. That means that every time you sit in the morning or the evening reading the word of God and cherishing it and chewing on it, you are fighting for your life because you're teaching yourself to cherish the gospel of Jesus, which will guard you on the day of temptation. I have a friend who uh, has a wife and some children, uh, and for a while he was living in a house, uh, and his next door neighbor um, was attracted to him, that's the best way to say it, I guess. And so she would mow the lawn in a bikini when she knew that he was home. And his wife started noticing, hmm, when my husband's not home, she mows the lawn fully clothed, and when my husband is home, she mows the lawn in a bikini. And one day, the man's wife and his children drove off on a trip. He packed them in the car, and he sent them off, and he turned back in the driveway to walk into his house, and there was the woman in the bikini greeting him. And she said, well, your wife's finally gone. You ready to have some fun? And he said, I have a beautiful wife and wonderful children and a good reputation, you really think I would give that up for 20 minutes with you? So how was he able to resist temptation? He valued what he had, right? Now, bigger picture even than marriage, reputation, what do you have, Chris? You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you place a high value on what you have, 
then in the moment that temptation comes, you'll say, you think I'm going to give that up for an hour of fun? But to do that, we must treat the gospel like a pearl of great price, because it is. So Christian, don't be ruled by your appetites and cherish the gospel of Jesus, that we might be ushered all the way home by our Lord Jesus. Let's do that together. Let's pray together.